And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm delighted to welcome Jan Brett back to the program today. Jan is one of the most respected authors and illustrators of children's books in the world. Among her dozens of books are Berlioz the Bear, The Umbrella, and The Animal's Santa. Today we'll be discussing her latest, The Tale of the Tiger Slippers, which is published by G.P. Putnam's Sons Books for Young Readers. So, Jan, when had you first heard the tale of Abu Qasem's slippers? Well, I'm a great reader. I mean, I'm a not great reader, but a reader that reads a lot. <laughs> and I was reading Cutting for Stone, excellent novel. came out about 10 years ago, I think. And embedded in the story when the main character is in jail of all places for political reasons. And he's with other people that are incarcerated. And this is in Africa tells this tale. And then later on, I was reading Eaters of the Dead by Michael Crichton, big fan of his. He wrote Jurassic Park. Where an Arabic know. emissary goes up to the north and yes. northern Europe, yeah. Arabic emissary. I've always thought of that's a good way to describe it. And he tells the same story. I thought it was very interesting because there's a lot of symbolism in it, but the main story could be very childlike and kind of fun. So that's where I got it. And of course, it tells about this merchant in Baghdad who's a very unpleasant character, a negative character. And he wears these old crummy slippers in order to make better deals when he's, he's a merchant. So I said, well, what would it be more fun to draw, a grouchy old man or a tiger? <laughs> I said, tiger. <laughs> so I set it in India. And at that time, setting it way back in India, 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, I thought maybe because the borders had changed, India and northern India, Pakistan, Persia, now Iran, all the way to Iraq, were all part of some of the same culture of the Mughal dynasties. So there were many kings and fathers. I think the first one was Timberlane, who was a Mongol very proud of their Mongol ancestors. And it was an interesting culture because they embraced many different religions, but they would marry their progeny to people from lands that they would conquer so that they would embrace their cultures. And they had these ateliers, studio workshops, where they would employ artists. They would give these artists a place to live and work and were very proud of the libraries that they would have folios of this beautiful artwork. And you go into any museum today and this artwork is so beautiful and loved that there's always a representative of Persian miniatures. Sometimes they're called Indian court art. Sometimes it's called because it's all these agglomeration of all those cultures. Small did a lot of flora and fauna. So probably my favorite piece is in the Met Museum in New York, and it's a, a fruit bat. It's so beautiful. On many of the pages, you have a two-page spread of one picture with these little panels on either side. Are some of the frames representative of the Mughal style? Yeah, I think they are. So I, I used it, but I wasn't slavishly devoted to it. I didn't get my PhD, which would be needed to be slavishly devoted. But there were a lot of things like the colors. They had so many influences. They even had Christian influences because early on the Christians went to Goa and brought some of their almost medieval-type art there. And the way the mountains turn into kind of a bluish haze, that was a very Christian kind of thing to do. And, of course, some of it was dictated by the colors they used. They would use lapis lazuli ground up on gesso they would use on these boards. And that would only be used for the most special 
kind of clothing, someone would, important because that would be very expensive. And then use gold crushed up gems, which I always thought was, oh, okay, crush up a few sapphires and rubies, put it in my paint. But uh, <laughs> I don't know, I thought that was funny. <laughs> so which museum in America has your favorite collection? Ooh, well, I'd have to say the Museum of Fine Arts because I went to museum school in Boston. Mondays, the museum was closed except for the museum school students. So we could go in and so I have some favorites there. But I guess there's probably European museums that have great collections. So I'm really not a good authority on that. But I just remember, you know, hearing the rain beating down on the windows outside and exploring this Persian miniature gallery because they just like draw you in. You feel like you're walking inside to another land. And that's what I try to create in my books. So I felt an affinity to them. So they had not only had borders, but they had a strange perspective where you could see everything. So if it was a house that you would see the people in the house and the banquet being prepared. And then outside would be maybe some warriors with their horses with all the trappings. In the background might be tents <laughs> and then a hunting scene. And then it goes on and on. I always felt like there was a whole world in each painting. Back to those side panels, sometimes they're one picture. Sometimes they are a picture that has a smaller picture inset within, and then sometimes there are three distinct pictures in the panels. And I was just wondering what all the, the process behind that was. Oh, I just draw what I feel like drawing. <laughs> I guess there's like no really intellectual answer for that. I would have to say that emotionally when I was a little kid, I was one of these high anxiety kids, and I would get very involved with the characters. There was just no barrier between me and my books, and I would get very involved with the characters and I would make sure they weren't going to die by looking at the last page because I wanted to be prepared if something bad was going <laughs> to happen. So I, I started early on putting borders in my books. Interestingly enough, my first book that I presented to was Houghton Mifflin and the editor said, you know, we love your artwork but we're going to have to match your art with a writer and it may be a while before the right writer comes along but you can write your own story. I said, oh, I'm not a writer at all. And they, he said, can you tell stories? I said, oh, I can tell stories. He said, well, just write them down and I'll help you. And so I said, okay. It was like a little bit of being worried about was I good enough to be able to do that. Having, you know, as an artist, oh, I was good enough because since six years old, I knew I was going to be illustrated. The first book had borders that were decorative. And he said, we don't want any pretty little books. He even had a name for them, PLBs. Children's literature should have content. It has to draw the child in and fulfill all their emotional parameters or their references. And so the next book was Annie and the Wild Animals, and I put content in the borders. And he said, okay, go ahead. And then I've not stopped since. So I guess a little bit is being able to say what's going to happen next. Another way is just giving more information to the reader. So like let's say there's a page in my tiger book where the baby tiger is born and all the well-wishers, all the animals come. They're all dressed in clothes. They like, can talk. And they're all wishing good things for the tiger. Peacock is wishing beauty. Elephant is wishing wisdom. A rhino's wishing good strength. But then in the side panel, there's the monkey, and he's saying, well, I wish your father wouldn't wear those grungy old slippers. So this is harks back to the, the tale of the tiger slippers only. In those days, it was Abu Karim's slippers. <laughs> there are three animals that make negative comments about the slippers throughout the course of the story. Oh, yeah. How did you decide what type of animal would be... Oh, I don't even remember what animals they were. There was There's a like monkey, a crocodile, croc, a monkey and a stork. Well, you know, I have to say, 
Kipling was one of my favorites when I was little, and now it's kind of cringeworthy when you read it because it just doesn't work with our cultural friendliness. But he had a great story about a croc and adjutant stork, and I don't remember the name. It was a short story, but the crocs were called muggers, and I really wanted to call the croc a mugger in the book. My editor said no, that no one would understand. So I guess I just wanted to have my little wave of remembrance to that wonderful story because the stories are like alive in my mind. So I was thinking – I love the continuation of like somebody starts something with their characters that could be centuries ago and being kind of continue some of those little threads. So why do you think animals work so well as stand-ins for humans in children's stories? Hmm. Well, I don't know. It started, I think, with Aesop. You know, that was very early on. I've gone to a lot of countries visiting them in order to do research. And I can't think of a country that doesn't have animals dressed up in human clothes. My favorite was the Inuit up in Baffin Island. They had like walruses and birds and everything dressed up in parkas. It was great. Maybe it's like a little bit apart from us so that we can look at them and laugh at them and learn from them in a different way that's not so personal and, you know, a a little bit closer. Getting a perspective. Maybe that's it. For me personally, I just like draw creatures and I think that if I have a talent, it might be to put um, human emotions on an animal. When I'm doing a book, one of the big decisions is – do I put claws on them? Because <laughs> I don't want it to be too cutesy. I want them to have integrity as the creatures. Right now, I'm really into chickens. They have kind of small heads. It's hard to make them, but their personality is shown in their body language a lot of times. Like I have a chicken that tiptoes, like when she gets a treat and is trying to get away from all the others. She tiptoes away. While your animals have human similarities and they walk upright mostly and they speak to each other. You still keep them pretty anatomically correct. Otherwise, they don't have hands. They have their normal paws. Yes, I try. I have made my mistakes, but I try to make them anatomically correct. And that was one of the reasons we went to India. And we went to one of these huge game parks, uh, Tiger Reserve. We were told by the guides, don't expect to see a tiger because they mostly hunt at night. And you're very lucky if you see one, especially close by. So we were there for three days and we were with a bird guide. Best way to look at wildlife is to go with a bird guide because you're kind of stopping, listening, and letting the forest around you kind of come alive. Whereas if you're barreling around looking for this mammal or that mammal, sometimes you scare everything away. So we were looking for birds, and we all of a sudden, the monkeys, langors, which are these gray monkeys with long tails, start doing the alarm call. It's like a bark. And then the uh, deer, chital, they're called. They're like spotted deer, beautiful little deer. They were making their alarm calls, which also sounds like a barking dog. And then the birds are making a big fuss. They're all facing in one direction, so obviously, <laughs> look in that direction. And we heard this huge roar. It was like if you were next to a train. You know, going, Have you ever gone under a bridge that a train is going mm-hmm. over? and your insides jiggle. That was what it was like. It was so scary. All our hair stood on our arms. We were just thinking, be afraid. (laughs) That's what we were thinking. And the tiger came out and it looked at us like dirt, you know, 
walk by us like a huge giant cat and then stood up on its hind legs and scratched, sharpened its claws. It was a huge deal. So I was able to see it. You think that I would be all inspired to come back and draw a tiger, just the opposite. I was so daunted by this animal. You know, there still eat people in India. There's men eaters. They're mostly the old tigers, but still, you have to be afraid. They don't let people in the park before 10.30 and after like 4.30 because that's when they're hunting the tigers. And there's maybe 33 in this giant – it's like the size of Rhode Island, maybe the third – eastern third of the Tennessee. That's how big the park is. Wow. And it's been like the hunting grounds of all the big kings in India, emperors, whatever you would call them. So the ecosystem is pretty much the same. Little animals, middle-sized animals, big animals, birds are pretty much the same. So we were really lucky to have this experience. But I had to come back. I said, I don't really have a book because I can't make a tiger dressed in clothes and having conversations after seeing this beast. And then my editor, I talked to her and she said, yes, you can. (laughs) (laughs) I go, well, yeah, we did spend three weeks of our life in India looking at tigers and you know, it was the plane fare and everything was a lot. So I did do it. But I, there's always a little part of me going like, mm, maybe that wasn't the best animal to use. <laughs> well, I mean, they're very attractive animals, but they are fearsome as well. They are so fearsome. And, you know, when I was really little, I read William Blake's poem, The Tiger with a Y. And it has a lot of deep meaning in it. And I didn't understand the deep meaning, but there was something about that poem that has so much presence and so much vitality that I just was drawn to it. And I think that, you know, I always like to think that's like a little kernel of a child experience that comes out when I choose to do a book. And that was definitely, there was some little connection there. You'd mentioned you went with a bird guy and on those border panels so often there are birds yes. inhabiting those. I was there just... were a lot of endemics, which would be birds that only lived in that area. One was the drongo, which is this blackbird type bird, but that had long tail feathers with like a spatula end to them. And that was really cool. And then also I was saying I'm a chicken person and the red jungle fowl was in this forest and they're the ancestor of all chickens. And they look just like a big light brown leghorn chicken, but bigger. Now, they do go through a phase of where the male's feathers all turn kind of darker and not as flamboyant. And the females stop laying. And there's a certain more wild aspect to them that we don't have with our domestic chickens. But it was weird to be going down the road with a jeep and hearing, <laughs> and it would be the red jungle fowl. And then the females would be, they, when they lay their eggs, it's a certain call. They go, buck, buck, buck. We'd hear that. We'd go, oh, my gosh, that's like real chickens. And then, we, of course, peacocks everywhere. Those cries I know. can be so scary. <laughs> <laughs> and they would be, uh, they certainly give away their position, but they go way up high in the trees at night. So in this story, are all animals able to talk or are there some in the non-talking? No, they're all, they all talk. I'll talk. <laughs> so as the story opens up, a young tiger cub's friends have come over and they ask him about a pair of slippers that have an honored place in the garden. Yes, an honored place. Why did you decide to use kind of this framing story to get into the main story of the slippers? You know, I can't remember. I think I did it because I wanted to show the cub 
and make it more interesting for children to read. So that I have this tale that's really an adult tale. If it makes you kind of, when you read it, you go, ooh, this is really an old-fashioned kind of story because there's a lot of kind of unpleasant things that happen in the original tale. So I thought this would be a good way to draw people in. And I also love the ending. It kind of makes a bookend because at the end, the tiger cub comes up with a solution of how to deal with these slippers that keep coming back. And of course, it's symbolic of, let's say you're living your life and you have something that happens that just kind of you keep remembering back and it's hard to get away from. No one can promise someone a perfect life. So how do you deal with these kind of unpleasant or destructive thoughts and memories. And one way you can do it is to kind of put them in their own place and not have them dog you from, you know, in your daily life. So that's what they do with the slippers. They give them their own special, it's not a shrine, but it's just a special place for them. The uncle that is part of the story, the last way he tries to get rid of the slippers is he sends some airmail to this uncle who lives in a village far away. When the uncle sees the slippers, part of the story they haven't told about yet is that little tiger cub's mother makes them the slippers. And then he finds a bank of clay and makes bricks and becomes a famous builder and architect and does wonderful work with these special bricks and this clay that's very unusual. And the inference is that the slippers kind of protect and guide him. So then they get all worn from all this hard work, and this is what the uncle recognizes. So he mentions about this is the slippers that when you built your mom that beautiful house and when you did all this hard work and your talents were able to be shown. And so he brings them back the third time, and that's when the son has the idea of making a little special place. Also, I think there's another great lesson in the story is not listen to that criticism quite so much. Yeah, not listening to that criticism. That's a very good Especially thought. when it's something that is so personal and means so much to him. Yes, exactly. And it's his new wife who says the slippers aren't appropriate. And then when he's going to be entertaining the, the rhino king, then he throws them away thinking that they won't be good enough. But I wondered why a tiger would need slippers in the first place. Well, he's a young tiger and he gets thorns in his pads. And there's not enough mice to help him out. We have to to use our artistic license a little bit with that (laughs) one. (laughs) We don't want to scrutinize too Mm -hmm. carefully. (laughs) It's also effective showing how much meaning they have by having these unfortunate things happen Uh when he tries to throw them away. Yeah. I did read Eaters of the Dead uh, oh, you probably did? 20, 30 years ago. Then I went back and read a couple of different versions of the story of the slippers. And I'll have to say uh, – Not a children's our, story. And not a children's story. Our tiger hero comes across much better in the story than Abu Qasim did in the other stories. Yes, he does. <laughs> so I kind of a little bit remolded it for children. Could you give us the broad strokes of the process and you first have the idea and how that works through book – and oh, to the art and then to the yeah. publishing phase. Well, every book has got its own little story to go along with it. But I get a lot of ideas like just before going to sleep, you know, that little time when your subconscious starts to be part of your thinking process. And then running, I go running and I get a lot of ideas running. And I always say it's like shooting stars. You can look up at night and nothing, 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 nothing. And all of a sudden you'll be driving the car and then whew, There we'll go. And that's the way the ideas are. They just come. And you just have to be ready to catch them and be able to say, hmm, and then maybe remold them. Sometimes my editor will help me in some ways, maybe changing the perspective, maybe the character 
or something about the story, but not lately that hasn't happened. And um, the next thing I'll do is write it down. Like my idea for Animal Santa, it was like on this really hot summer night when it was so hot, I had like fans everywhere and there's like crickets and just as summery as you could get. And that's when I thought up Animal Santa. So like, why did that happen? You know, no explanation. And I love that idea. I don't like to be methodical and to go in an academic way. I like it to be muse-like and magic. And so the next thing would be writing down. Then I do a little book dummy. I could have brought you, I have my muskox book, which I'm working on now. And that I've got the little dummy in the book because I'm doing some of the art for it now. So I'll write it, make it in a little dummy. I just take typing paper, sew it with a needle and thread. The signature is in. They're usually 32 pages, picture books. Mine are always 32 so far. And then do the finishes. And I don't like to do too much in the sketching process because as I will tell the children when I'm having my talk today, I wish there was some way I could really teach them about this. But you need to kind of, when you start to draw, there's something happens. There's something about that motion, that hand you know, scratching the surface of the paper that kind of releases something in your brain. The world you create all of a sudden becomes important. The world around you fades away. And then something magic happens. You don't always know. Sometimes a story will then inform you instead of you informing the story. And then a lot of times I'll finish a book and I'll say, oh my gosh, this is what happened to me in first grade. This is the exact scenario. So you have all these things inside that are little small stories. And I'm a person who thinks in stories, and I think it's a very human characteristic to do it. And also, I think this like repetitive digital movement of drawing somehow allows that to come out. Like a lot of people say, oh, I get my best ideas when I'm driving a car. You know, you're making these little small movements or knitting or for me, running it must be the oxygen that, you know, just getting that in my mind and just having your mind on something in the foreground. It kind of allows other thoughts that are not quite so edited to come to the surface. The subconscious is a, a wonderful treasure trove, isn't it? It's a wonderful treasure trove. You never know what you're going to find in there. And I've heard so many adult authors say, I had this character that just came and took hold of my life. It's almost like a presence, you know, a real presence. And it was like, I think all of us, when we finish a book, it's like, oh. Editors wonder why you don't want to pass your work in on time. Well, it's because you don't want to let go of it. It's like a part of your life for like a year. That's how long it takes me to do a book. So sad when you have to leave them behind. Has it gotten any easier? You've done almost 40 books now. I don't know. You know, you always want to be fresh. And so sometimes you want to just like cut to the chase. That's one thing about going to different countries. If I don't know how many people have had this experience of going on a trip, could even be a car trip, and you come home and it's like you've been to the beach and the tide goes in and now the tide goes out again and you've got like a fresh start. And if you go to another country where you're learning another culture, different language, different colors, different food, and then you come back, it's kind of a jolt and sometimes it feels like a reboot. So I, I like traveling for that reason. Is that the same reason you do the bus tours? Bus tours, the publisher does them. I live a very isolated life now that our kids are grown up. And I have um, my husband, Joe, who I'm really, we're like best friends. And he's a musician. I do go to his concerts, but I'm very isolated. So it's a way I can be in touch with kids and, you know, see what they're doing and be impressed. A lot of them will bring their artwork. That's very exciting. I like to tell them about trying to find this 
inner motivation that they might not know they have their imagination. Luckily, I had a mother encourage that. Like no TV, either outside or you could be playing with blocks or coloring or doing something, you know, that we would make up ourselves. Imagination games, that kind of thing. But not everybody has that. And a lot of times teachers come to my book signings and they understand how important reading is. I feel like I'm giving them some little bit of an insight about how the books are made because that's the future, their kids, that they're teaching. Your husband, is it double bass player? Double bass player, yes. I remember that. All right, good. 58 years. I'm going to introduce him. Does music play a part in your creative side? Well, you know, I forgot the one, that was another way I get ideas is listening to his – he's a symphonic musician. So, of course, all those works are tried and true for hundreds of years. Well, most of them are 100 years or 50 years. And so they are very complex and intellectually stimulating probably on a higher level than the, my thought process. And a lot of nuances, emotional nuances, and I'm just in awe of it. So I don't like directly get ideas from them, but I'll just be there and your thoughts sometimes get disturbed and go in a different direction when you're listening to music. Let's go back to your art process. When you're making the final illustration, what does that process look like? Oh, it's coloring. It's just like, you know, when you sit down and you're making a dinosaur or a garden with flowers. I just, it's almost like I can look at the page and just start drawing and it just happens. So ever since I was six, well, maybe this will help me describe it. When I was little, I was a very, and still am, kind of a slow thinker. So I had to kind of think about what I was going to say because otherwise it would come out wrong. It would just blurt out what something I really did not mean. And I think everybody feels a little bit at that extent. But I'm never the one with a quick comeback or, you know, the right thing to say at the right time. I would be the one who is like sitting there going, mm. But if I drew, I had that time to put in the thing. So it's almost like a language when I'm drawing. It's getting into that mode of when I'm drawing. I'm starting to go, oh, I want to tell kids about this. I want to be able to... It's not really kids. It's very selfish. It's me. I'm drawing for myself. My six-year-old self is what I'm drawing for. And I remember when I was that age and I knew I wanted to be an illustrator, I wouldn't promise myself all these things. Like I would say, I don't want any like books that talked down to me or did not have enough information or the characters were not realistic. I mean, they could be cartoons, but you know what I'm saying, not authentic in the, you know, the grand sense of being authentic. Having um, artistic expression and vision. Yeah, artistic expression and vision. That's why I'm a slow thinker. (laughs) (laughs) Quickly for the art nerds in our audience. Art nerds. Could you talk about the physical materials that you use, the the paper, the pencils, the pigments? I use Strathmore paper. I love my paper. I like to layer colors on it. It seems like if so many things in life, it's the light is hitting the images and there'll be many colors that will come to the surface. So what I like to do in my pictures is layer different colors so that you get kind of a shimmery effect and almost 3D so that I'm layering color upon color upon color. And then I'll take as much color off as I put on. So I'll have a water on my brush. And I'll be taking off paint all the time. And so I'm going back and forth and back and forth. And it's just almost sculptural. And so it's not a classic watercolor technique where you would have watercolor paper and you would use washes and resist and use your light colors first and then put on layers of 
color for the images. With me, it's like colored pencil. I make the paint very dry. It's like a dry brush watercolor technique. So I'll use Winsor Newton watercolors and then the brushes I'm very particular about. My husband and I always joke about he has rosin for his bow. It has to be exactly the right rosin. And his bow it has to be his bow. If anything else, it just makes you feel grouchy. So um, I don't want to feel grouchy when I do it. <laughs> so I have these like little brushes and then when they start to wear out it's like oh no i've got to find a new favorite brush do you get a different sense when you're looking at the original as opposed to the reproductions in the book reproduction books? is pretty darn good it really is but you know the interesting process is well i'll do my picture and i'll, I'll finish my book and i'll go oh this is the worst book i've ever done this is just oh my gig is up this is horrible and pass it into the publisher and not even want to think about it and then I've got, oh, the next book. I'm going to make it all up in the next book. And then I'll be doing the next book and then I'll see some of the older books. I'll go, oh, I'll never be able to draw as good as I did in this <laughs> book. <laughs> you can't win. So I think that striving and it fights with like you, you fall in love with your subject. So there's the striving and the love of your subject and then there's this other voice of like, you can do better. You can do better. This is not good enough. Look at other – I love to go to museums and look at other people's paintings and just be in awe. So complacency is not on your schedule. No, I keep adding things on, which means I have less and less time in my life to just kind of I – and mean, that's a good thing about the book tour is I have a little bit of time to look out the window and – well, I do that in my running too. So the next story, will it be chickens? No, it's going to be muskox. Muskox. And they are – a baby muskox is without a doubt the cutest creature ever been on Earth. They're just so cute. More than otters? What? More than otters? Otters are really darn cute, especially (laughs) sea otters. Well, the muskox are so fluffy. They've got like a little white nose and their eyes are quite big and then their legs are white and they are so fluffy and they don't smell bad and they're really more of an arctic goat than an ox. They have that hump that has brown fat in it, which carries them through the winter. So they look like a buffalo, but they're really not the same. They just have that way of carrying you know, storage fat for the wintertime because they can live in like 50 degree below zero for wow. like days upon days upon days. And they scratch. They're like way above the Arctic Circle. And they're hunted out in the 1800s. And then there were 37 brought from Greenland and they've been repopulating Canada and Alaska. And there's a muskox farm in Anchorage, which I've been going to. Well, Jan, I want to thank you so much for coming back on Book Talk. It's always a pleasure and safe travels on the bus. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Jan Brett is the author and illustrator of The Tale of the Tiger Slippers, which is published by G.P. Putnam Sons for Young Readers. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.